This week, the comics guys explain the Blue Beetle. Yes, thank you, Ben. Uh, this time, we'll be covering uh, one of the uh, classic Charleston characters, uh, the Blue Beetle. Uh, so, Darren, uh, I think a lot of people uh, are at least a little bit familiar with the second version and the third version, but how does this whole Blue Beetle thing kick off? So we start with uh, Victor S. Fox. And Victor S. Fox was a kind of an entrepreneur in the 20s and 30s, the kind of, you know, like vaguely scandalous, uh, you know, gangster who would wind up in the comic book business, right? Like at a time when it was kind of like, you know, home to people like that. Uh, Fox, uh, according to legend, was a illegal boiler room stock salesman like during the, at the time of like the stock market crash. Um, but we can't actually confirm that that's the case. Uh, the, 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 let's put it this way. There is a guy named Victor S. Fox who gets arrested a bunch of times uh, in the late 20s and proving that he's the same guy who wound up with this company a few years later has turned out to be kind of tricky for historians. That's, that's an awesome starting backstory for like a super uh, superhero. Right, exactly. Backroom stocks and then was bitten by a radioactive boiler room man or something. (laughs) That's a great start. So we don't know exactly how he like got to this point. We do know uh, that he eventually got a job as a salesperson for Independent News. Independent News was part of the whole company that if you go back to our DC history was part of the company that was like, you know, built around national uh, national publications. And so uh, we know that he was there, kind of like in the office next door, basically, when Superman took off for DC, when Action Comics number one hit and like became a big smash. Um, And so very quickly, uh, Fox kind of like saw that there was a chance to make some money uh, at this operation, and he quit his job and opened his own comic book shop, his own comic book company, not not a store, obviously, but a publisher. Um, and he called it Fox Feature Syndicates on Lexington Avenue in New York City. And he was one of the first guys. He's one of kind of like the earliest rivals to National. One of the first guys to get a Superman ripoff onto the stands, right? Like within four months after Action Comics number one comes out, he's already there, like trying to, you know, like swipe a piece of that audience. And he was a very early adopter of the packager system, which is, once again, the thing we've talked about in several history notes. And so he uh, didn't have any staff. He didn't have any writers or artists or anything working for him. He went to the Eisner uh, Iger Studios and basically had them deliver to him, uh, you know, entire, like, completed strips, right? He just kind of, like, uh, you know, like, bought the rights to characters that Eisner Iger generated from their in-house writers and artists. And uh, one of the very first, the first characters that he put out on the stands was a character called Wonder Man. And Wonder Man was an absolutely direct uh, Superman ripoff, right? He's super strong and he flies and he has a blue and red costume and a cape and et cetera, et cetera. He basically looks like Superman. Um, and he is the first guy that DC sues to protect their rights to Superman and say, you know, hey, hands off. This is our character. You can't go around coming, you know, putting out the, the stories of another character who looks just like him, right? They went to court where Will Eisner 
who was the writer who had created Wonder Man, uh, was asked to testify about Wonder Man as a character and the creation of Wonder Man. And Eisner basically, he's a little cagier than this, but I mean, like he basically admits that uh, that Fox went to him and said, give me a Superman ripoff. Right, like that. Those were his instructions in like making the character. Um, and so, even though Eisner kind of like tries to avoid saying that directly, he's also not willing to lie on the stand. So, I mean, he does kind of, uh, he kind of gives it away, and very quickly the the case is over, and uh, you know, Fox is sued. They have to get rid of Wonder Man, uh, and pay a bunch of fines and 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 fees and that sort of thing. And this is the famous Will Eisner, the guy who does the spirit, right? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and he, he was Eisner was the lead of the 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 lead writer as well as an artist. He was like the guy who organized the writers in the Eisner Iger Studio. Okay, makes sense. So, this is pre spirit, though I'm guessing, right? This is pre spirit. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So after losing, uh, to the, this court case to National, and being kind of honked off at Eisner, who you know, like in kind of like lost him the case basically by being honest. Uh, uh, Fox says, okay, uh, this packager deal doesn't really like, you know, like work for me. I'm not in control. I'm not, uh, you know, the, these people are, are, are too independent. And so I'm going to start, uh, an in-house studio. And so he hires, uh, Joe Simon to be his first editor in chief. And once again, this is Joe Simon before he's gone to work for Timely and before he's created Captain America. So Simon and several other guys who were working in the pre-superhero comic book industry basically come work for Fox and start churning out comics. And some of the guys who do who come with him are uh, Lou Fine and George Tuska, uh, Matt Baker, who was the rare uh, black artist in the Golden Age working in the 40s, um, kind of notable for that, and young, super young Jack Kirby was another one of the ones who came along, right? And so uh, he, you know, kind of like puts them to work. He's, even though he's lost his first case against uh, against National, he still thinks uh, comic books are clearly the way to make money. And so uh, he starts putting out more titles. One of the titles he puts out in August of 1939 is Mystery Men Comics number one. And Mystery Men Comics uh, has a lead hero uh, who is called the Blue Beetle. And Blue Beetle is, uh, you know, titled the 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 uh, pen name of the creator on the you know first page is Charles Nicholas, and Charles Nicholas was kind of like a shared pen name that a bunch of people who worked at Fox all used the same name, uh, you know, as their uh, to to, to uh, you know have like continuity from stories, even though like from issue to issue it would be a completely different set of writers and artists who were actually working on the character. They all signed to Charles Nicholas to make it look like it was one guy. Was that um, common back then, or was it, this like? It kind of was. Um, it was, you know, like it. It it, it had kind of like two purposes. One, it made it look like there was, you know, like an artist, a a a, a person, kind of like behind the creation, and it also kind of like was good for the publishers because it kept the artists, the actual artists and writers, from getting too uppity about seeing their, you know, names in print, right? So it kind of like was a was a not popular with the artists, but a kind of like a done thing. And publishers who didn't make you do that were more popular. Makes sense, yeah. Right. So because the you know like you, they wanted to get credit under their real names or at least their real assumed names, right? Like I mean, Jack Kirby wasn't Jacobs, 
Jacob Kurtzman's real name, right? Kind of thing. So, um, so the, it is believed that the actual guy working under the name Charles Nicholas, who created Blue Beetle, is a guy named Charles Wachowski. Um, but it is certainly true that over those first few issues, uh, a bunch of different people worked on this, including Jack Kirby and Will Eisner, actually, who, you know, despite the fact that, uh, you know, Fox was mad at him, um, was still taking, you know, like freelance work from him, right? So at least one or two of those scripts apparently were done by Will Eisner. Um, and in a couple of the uh, early pieces, you can see that's clearly Jack Kirby's penciling. I mean, yes, he's young and it doesn't really quite look like what it's going to look like later, but you can see Kirby's stuff. You know, you can see that the, the, that's pretty clear. So Wachowski was not the only guy. Um, Wachowski himself uh, eventually quit working for Fox and went over to Timely. And uh, after the war, he uh, co-created uh, Blonde Phantom, and he was the guy who did the cover to um, All Winners uh, 21, the one that introduced the All Winners squad. So he worked on Captain America and Human Torch and all of that stuff. Um, but uh, so he gets credit, Wachowski gets credit for creating Blue Beetle, but he really didn't have much to do with him, uh, you know, after that first issue or two. So Blue Beetle himself as a character, when he first shows up, is very clearly uh, a ripoff of, obviously, if you kind of like think about it for a moment, the Green Hornet. Right? They've literally just changed the color and changed the bug. But his costume looks basically exactly like the Green Hornets in his first appearance. Um, uh, very quickly, they change that. I mean, the, once he, they, he keeps the name, but he stops looking like Green Hornet after like the first or second issue. They decided that wasn't really like a, you know, uh, an interesting way to go. Plus, they had already gotten in trouble for ripping off another more famous character. And I think probably Fox kind of like gave them orders to make him a little more different uh, than he actually was. So over the course of his first five appearances, uh, Blue Beetle wears three different costumes that don't look anything like each other, right? So if you were a kid trying to follow this character, it must have seemed very strange that like, you know, every time you picked up an issue of Blue Beetle, it seemed like it was about a different dude. Uh, but eventually... That'd be, cool, uh, that'd be a cool... That would have been a cool uh, idea to run with. As a character type, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But they didn't. It was just literally, it was just because different people were working on him and they all had kind of different ideas of what they should do with him. So yeah. um, eventually they do settle on one. Um, and uh, it goes pretty well. The the Blue Beetle is a is a Dan Garrett is his name. It's spelled with one T in the uh, in the in the Fox version of him. It will later be spelled with two T's. Uh, but uh, the, the 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 original guy it's G A R R E T, and he is uh, very simply the son of a policeman. His dad gets killed by a criminal, uh, and so he. Uh, uh, to become a policeman himself, but also uh, puts on a costume to fight crime uh, outside of being, you know, to, to, to get to the criminals that the police aren't able to get uh, sort of thing as a, you know, costumed vigilante. Um, Mystery Men was much more in the tone of Batman than it was Superman. Um, most of the features did not have characters with superpowers, but as Blue Beetle went along, he got superpowers. It turns out uh, by his uh, the time he gets his first issue uh, of his own comic, he becomes popular enough to get spun out of Mystery Men and get one under his own name. Um, he is now wearing the blue chainmail 
costume that looks kind of more like the Phantom. It does like uh, like uh, Green Hornet. And he has superhuman powers because he is taking vitamin 2X. And he gets <laughs> vitamin 2X from his quote-unquote neighborhood pharmacist, Dr. Franz. Who apparently does somehow... Really. That's awesome. Did, the neighborhood pharmacist just happens to have vitamins that give you superpowers. You just have to apparently ask him. <laughs> you know, why everybody on his block does not have superpowers is not a thing that is ever explained. Um, I Roy. That's great. Yeah. So Dr. Dr. Franz basically decided that, uh, you know, Dan Garrett was cool enough to get his super vitamin or whatever. And so now he's got super strength and he can fly. Um, the second and... hour, uh, hour man gets powers like that too, right? Because he takes an hour pill or something. Takes Miraclo. Yeah. Miraclo. Yeah. Yeah. I've always yeah, found unlike, unlike Miraclo, uh, you know, vitamin 2X like works all the time, right? Like he just has to take one every day or whatever, and he's super strong and he can fly, basically. He sounds like a superhero that like doctors would create then. <laughs> like eat an apple and take your vitamins and Right, exactly. Yeah. Vitamins are like a the new hot thing in the 30s, right? Like the late 30s, right. it's like a, you know, they're they're all in the press. All of the good things that vitamins can do for you uh was like a big, you know, national health uh, uh topic in the news. So the idea that like there was a vitamin that you could just pop and, you know, here, take this pill and you'll be super strong is completely in, you know, uh, in tone with everything else that was in the rest of the newspaper, right? So I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, you know, vitamins to me have always been around, so it's it's not something that I think of that. But I guess in the time, they definitely could have. And they knew what they were before that, but like the 1930s were the time when like vitamin supplements were on sale, right? Like you would go buy them and stuff. It's not like they didn't understand vitamins before that, but like the idea that you could get a product, go to the store, go to the pharmacy and get a bottle of vitamins, that was a thing of the 20s and 30s. Right, I, I get it. It's the same way how it's like, it's like a new thing, so we we attribute you know uh, magical properties to it. It's the same reason that we have a lot of stuff right now, I guess, with like prosthes- prostheses that uh, make you better than human. But like, you know, in actuality, most prostheses get you up to human, right? Yeah. So it's like a similar, I guess, but it's a it's a newer thing, and we're seeing it all the time. So it, it like, seems cool and modern, and you know, scientific, right? Right. Despite nowadays, it sounds like he, you know, is Fred Flintstone chugging vitamins. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, I get that. So he's a cop during the day. He's got a day job as a cop and he's got a partner, good old Irish cop partner, uh, Mike Manigan. Uh, and he gets a girlfriend over the first couple of issues who is uh, Joan Mason, who is the crime reporter for the local Daily Blade newspaper. And as kind of like the running gag in the strip, both Mike Manigan and Joan Mason don't know that he's Blue Beetle and think Blue Beetle is a criminal, right? So they are constantly, uh, you know, trying to chase him down and, uh, you know, capture him for his various extra legal, uh, you know, vigilante activities while they both, you know, care greatly about him and his secret identity kind of thing. So he's got to hide uh, who he is and what he's doing from like his best friend and his girlfriend. Uh, briefly over the course of the first two or three years of the stories, he also gets a teen sidekick named Sparky because basically every superhero had a teen sidekick at that point. Um, and then over the course of the war, once the World War II actually begins, he switches from being a cop to being a government agent. And also his range of superpowers just like completely expands over the war 
once again with no extra explanation. Apparently, you know, vitamin two X just got better, um, and so uh, he doesn't actually fly until the war. He gets X-ray vision from his uh, vitamins, and he gets a bunch of like one-time only powers that you would think he would keep using, except he only ever uses them once, and then the writer forgets that he has them. Uh, right. So you know, there's a lot of like weird one-shot uh, abilities that he has. This is a character that you could never print today. He is a cop who does drugs and gives them to children. Yes, uh, right. That's, like, that's amazing. Exactly. From a, that gets does drugs that he gets from his quote unquote neighborhood pharmacist, who has a suspiciously German sounding name. Right, like Doctor Franz is not a thing that you would have created as a name for a character in World War Two, right? But a few years yeah, before World War Two, it's okay. Right. That's interesting. Anyway. Despite as much fun as we're kind of like making of this character, this is a popular character. This is a hit, right? This is the best uh, uh, superhero character that Fox has. Fox is doing a lot of crime comics and a lot of horror comics, and those are doing well. But this is basically the only superhero guy that he, he that they're that they're doing, and it's it's doing fabulously. Um, he sells so well that Fox actually spends the money uh, to sponsor Blue Beetle Day at the New York World's Fair. In the summer of 1940, right? Wow. Like, so, like, kids are dressing up. He has actors dressing up as as Blue Beetle, and they're handing out comic books and having like a whole event. And like, the mayor declares it to be Blue Beetle Day and everything. I mean, Blue Beetle. They did this with other characters too, right? Like, Superman also had a day uh, there. So this was kind of like a, a a regular bit that the World's Fair would do for the kids who were attending. Um, but Blue Beetle was popular enough to be there, you know, kind of like standing alongside Captain America and Superman and Captain Marvel and, you know, the other character, other other characters who, you know, were considered popular enough to do this for. Since Joe your last Simon. episode, I, actually, I did know this because I've been uh, looking up World Fair stuff. They're absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. Oh, we should do a whole episode about like comics related to the World's Fair. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Phantom well, of the Fair, the creation of World's Fair comics, which turns into World's Finest and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be a good one. Uh, if you want to if you want to hear that episode, uh, let us know on our Discord. I was going to say, or, get on our Discord or our Patreon and tell us you want to hear that right now. Yeah, I want to do that one. So Joe Simon uh, was talking. Joe Simon was on the uh, panel at the San Diego Comic-Con in 1998, and he was asked about Victor Fox. And he started telling Victor Fox stories and they just, you know, like went on forever and were delightful, right? Like Simon liked the guy. Uh, he paid on time, which, you know, was reasonably unusual, <laughs> you know, in the period uh, and, uh, you know, gave him a fair amount of freedom to do whatever he wanted. Um, Simon says he was a very strange character. He had kind of a British accent that we had no idea where it came from because he didn't seem to be British. Uh, he was like five foot two. He told us he was a former ballroom dancer and he was really loud and menacing and really kind of like a scary little guy. He seemed, you know, like very tough. He used to say, I'm the king of the comics. I'm the king of the comics. And we couldn't stop him from saying that. <laughs> so he, you know, kind of like a, a made money um, doing comics for several years. In 1942, he started to run into some trouble paying bills. And it's kind of unclear how he got into this trouble, right? Because he's, you know, the comics are all still selling. And what exactly he was doing with those profits, uh, once again, remains a bit of a mystery. Uh, you know, historians have, like, tried to look into this. But Fox Features gets into some financial trouble 
that is fairly difficult to explain. Um, clearly, some money was getting siphoned out of the operation somewhere because they weren't paying their bills. And yet, a fair amount of money was still coming in. So, like, where it precisely it was going out to not pay their bills is kind of unknown. But I love it, how criminal all these early comic, comics publishers are. That's they're a wonderful breed. They really are yeah. hilariously awful. Yeah. So we don't know what happened, but basically he wound up um, owing uh, a bunch of money to another publisher called Holyoke, and Holyoke was a comic comic a comic company that was owned by a printer, right? Like the printer was the was the top level of the company, and like one of the things the printer owned was a comic book company that they could just print their own comics through and like put out through there. And now Holyoke never really kind of like took off as a as a business, but you know. The printer itself made money because the printer was printing comics by a bunch of different publishers. And so one of the publishers that they were printing the comics for was Victor Fox, was Fox Teachers, right? Um, Fox had a studio now, but he still didn't own his own printer. And so he kind of somehow stopped paying his printer bill for a while. Uh, and, you know, Holyoke uh, got, you know, pretty angry about him. And they worked out a deal where Holyoke basically took over publication of a bunch of Fox's companies and put them out under the Holyoke brand, right? So, like, Fox somehow just kind of, like, stopped publishing, even though they were still the ones creating the comics. They would then turn them over to Holyoke to actually, like, get them out onto the stands and to the public, and they all say Holyoke Comics on the, you know, on the cover page, Right. And it's really unclear why this was necessary. Nobody knows the answer to this. It's a bit of a, you know, kind of like comic history mystery. Um, but it lasts for a chunk of the war. Basically, 1942 to 1944, Blue Beetle is not being published by Fox. It's being published by Holyoke Comics. Um, but it never really kind of like transfers away, right? It's not like they, he sold him the character because in 1944, Holyoke stops publishing the character and it returns to Fox Feature, who apparently somehow straightened out their financial situation over those two years and got all of their titles back. And apparently as part of this process, uh, Fox, uh, Victor Fox kind of like decides that not owning his own printer is no way to run things. Right? Like somehow this relationship and, you know, uh, it did not go as he expected. And so he starts his own printing company uh, or basically kind of uh, teams up with an existing uh, printing company in Pennsylvania called Central Color Press that becomes part of like the Fox, uh, you know, business line. And from that point on, he's doing his own printing. And I guess that that like helps settle his finance situation. Uh, so he never loses any any more characters, right? Like he doesn't go through the, another stretch like this after 1944. But we we to this day don't know what happened there. Um, so does Fox uh, at this point, does Fox have any other big characters, any other characters that we like remember today or anything? Only other one that we would remember today. Like I said, he did a bunch of horror, a bunch of crime. Um, right. The only other character that we remember today, uh, and the reason we remember her is because she wound up with uh, DC, is that when Quality stopped doing Phantom Lady, uh, the rights to Phantom Lady as a character reverted back to the Iger Eisner studio. 
right? Like uh, uh, Quality was only licensing her, basically, from the Iger Eisner studio. It's actually just Iger at that point because uh, Eisner, Will Eisner has left to, as you say, go do the spirit and that sort of thing, right? So he's not even working with the studio anymore. So it's Iger's studio. And so Quality... Phantom Lady's sales had like dropped to the point that Quality was no no longer willing to pay Iger to keep putting it out, so the rights to the character reverted to Iger, and then Fox picked her up. Okay. And so Fox was licensing from Iger from Iger the character for Phantom Lady, and also had a bunch of former Iger employees working on Blue Beetle and also on his horror and crime stuff. Um. The reason that we kind of like remember Phantom Lady from that period, this is the Arthur Petty art period uh, when it was being published by Fox, is that Phantom Lady, as you know, has one of the most preposterous costumes, uh, you know, of any like female superhero ever. It's like ridiculously low cut and high legged bathing suit outfit, basically, uh, with a great deal of flesh showing um, and then a cape and like goggles, basically. Um, and so the Arthur Petty version of it, Petty was very well known in comics as like the good girl artist, right? Like headlights comics, basically, right? Like characters with, uh, with, 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 shall we say, uh, buxom proportions. Um, and so Phantom Lady was, you know, kind of like really fit in to the, uh, the, 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 the true crime and horror scandalous stuff that Fox was publishing. Um, you know, yes, we have a superhero. We have a superheroine comic, but uh, our superheroine seems to get, you know, tied up a lot, <laughs> you know, and that sort of thing. She seems to lose her fights most of the time because so that she can be, you know, uh, perilously tied up on a bed somewhere kind of thing, right? You know, and you're just kind of like, is this really a superhero comic after all, you know? So this is, you know, especially post the war, Fox is basically publishing Blue Beetle, which manages to avoid having any of that in it. And then Phantom Lady and a bunch of this crime and, and horror stuff. And so, and even in the crime and horror world of publishing, Fox was known for being kind of like the more violent, the more sexy, the more sleazy, you know, like publishers for that. Which means, of course, that when the comics code comes along, they get clobbered, right? When the, when the, when the comics code kicks in um, and people are starting to like protest, when, when Seduction of the Innocent comes out, it's got a bunch of panels from Fox Comics in it as its examples of this is the terrible stuff that your children are reading, right? So Fox takes a beating during this stretch from a you know, from a, a, a financial perspective because it's just being held up as an example of the worst things that are going on in comics. And Fox basically says, I've had enough of this and files bankruptcy in 1950. And Victor Fox takes off and, uh, you know, goes to working in uh, commercial art, actually, for business. Um, once again, not as an artist himself, but as like an agent and, uh, you know, manager for other artists. So at the time, this he that cancels Blue Beetle. It cancels everything that Fox was doing. Um, and as part of the bankruptcy, uh, the he, he sells a bunch of his equipment from Central Color Press and a bunch of plates of completed but never published comics, right? He's got a lot of these because, uh, you know, just like boxes of it, basically, that are part of his assets at the time that he files bankruptcy. Um, just, you know, sitting in, a, sitting in a box somewhere, right? And uh, 
all of that stuff gets acquired by Charlton Comics, which was, you know, kind of like notoriously a bit of a bottom feeder as far as uh, publishing, right? Like it's, you know, they were they were the cheapest, right? They paid the lowest rates to their publishers, uh, to their artists and everything. And their printer, uh, they did their own in-house printing and it didn't really look very good. They used the cheapest paper. Like basically everything that Charlton did in the 50s was on the super cheap. Um, and so, you know, when one of their, uh, you know, rivals declared bankruptcy, they just basically swept in and took it all for nothing, basically, and just, you know, we'll figure out what to do with it later, right? And so Blue Beetle does not appear between 1950 and 1955. In 1955, Charlton is literally still just kind of like going through stuff, finds a bunch of these uh, plates of completed but never published Blue Beetle comics and decides it would be a good idea uh, to actually put them out. It's, you know, it's free to them, right? Exactly, basically. And the, you know, they, the, the rights to the character are, you know, Charlton never paid for this, <laughs> right? But Victor Fox isn't around to put up a fight. So as far as they're concerned, they've acquired the character by the, you know, kind of like shaky legal standards of comic book publishing in the 50s. So that remains kind of like unclear what the legal right that Charlton had to actually publish any of this stuff was. But regardless, they did it. And so they did, uh, they put a couple of the unpublished stories um, in like anthology titles that they were putting out, right? Like they had titles like Mystery Men, that sort of thing, that would include six or eight different features, uh, you know, and so they published those unpublished stories in their anthologies. And Charlton's fans were like, these are pretty cool. We like this guy. You know, this is, this remains a cool character. Um, and so they, having, having, Seeing that that could sell, at least reasonably well, they then did a four-issue run of a Blue Beetle comic in 1955 that was only filled with reprints from the 40s, right? Where they acquired the rights to, you know, those 1940s strips, once again, they probably didn't, right? They just happened to have the, you know, have, have the plates for them and that sort of thing and have the, uh, you know, uh, all of the detritus that was left over from Fox's bankruptcy, Right. And in grand Charlton tradition, of course, he didn't get a number one. Right. Because it was believed by Charlton and several other publishers at the time that having a, a, a low number on your monthly comic uh, was dangerous because distributors wouldn't necessarily take a chance on a new thing. Right. If you if you published a comic and it had a high number for its issues, if you like start with number 15 or something and pretend that you had a one through 14, then distributors will think, oh, this must be a successful comic. We should probably pick it up. Um, oh, it's kind of like preposterous to think of today. Right. The idea that like a number one wouldn't be valuable um, and that a distributor would be fooled this way. But regardless, this was standard operating procedure for a lot of mid-level publishers uh, during this period. So they took a comic uh, that had been running in a production slot. At the time, it was literally called The Thing. It was a horror comic, um, not the thing that we know, obviously. It was a you know completely different thing. Um, and so the last issue of The Thing was number 17. And then number 18 is they've completely changed the title to Blue Beetle. And so the first four issues of Charlton's Blue Beetle are literally numbered 18 through 21. Hmm. And they ran out of, uh, you know, like easily accessible reprints and canceled the series after number 21 and then gave that number to a new superhero title called Mr. Muscles by uh, Siegel, by Jerry Siegel. Uh, hmm. 
And so like the issues number 22 on from that are actually belong to Mr. Muscles. Um, and Charlton kind of, you know, gets out of the superhero business at that point, because in the, you know, 50s, superheroes aren't selling, right? Like we've kind of been over this through a couple of different histories. So Charlton continues to, you know, squeak along for another decade. Blue Beetle has kind of, you know, disappeared into obscurity. He's kind of a forgotten character from World War II. And in the early 60s, first DC has Justice League and all of their new, you know, characters that have exploded in the late 50s. And then the beginning of the 60s, Marvel comes along. And, you know, Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and, and the Hulk and, uh, you know, Thor uh, are selling great gobs, the Avengers, right? And so Charlton decides that it's time to get back into the superhero biz. And so they're kind of like casting around for like, you know, a superhero. Let's publish a superhero character. And uh, they realize or they think, hey, we used to publish a Blue Beetle thing. We, we must still own the rights to that, right? Kind of thing. We should make a new Blue Beetle. So starting in 1964, once again, completely free of any legal right to use this character, uh, they start putting out a new series uh, star, uh, written by uh, Joe Gill and with art by Tony Tallarico about a superhero called Blue Beetle, whose secret identity is Dan Garrett. They have no interest whatsoever in the actual character himself who appeared in the 40s. This is a completely different dude. The costume looks similar. It's much less kind of like chain y looking, but at least the, the the colors are kind of like in the right place. And you know he's got a, a a hood and a domino mask. Once again, kind of like the 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 Phantom, right? Kind of thing. Apart from that, they have nothing in common. Uh, Dan Garrett is now spelled with two T's, and Dan Garrett is not a cop anymore. Now he's an archaeologist, and he goes on a dig in Egypt. And in a strange tomb, he finds a magical scarab that basically gives him super strength and flight and the ability to shoot energy blasts out of his fingers, uh, which the old Blue Beetle never had. And then he goes off to be a superhero. It's very, uh, you know, thin. I mean, Joe Gill was a professional hack, but he was also at this time writing 15 or 20 comics, you know, like at a time per month kind of thing. And so it clearly, most of these things look like rush jobs, right? Like he clearly was not putting that much thought into it and was just hoping that, uh, you know, the, the superhero market was hot again and it would, it would uh, kind of like take off. Um, Charlton publishes it very kind of like irregularly. They basically have uh, like three different bursts of it happening and then they would like kind of like let it lie fallow for a few months between 64 and 66 um only 11 issues of the dan garrett with two t's version get published over those two and a half years you know it's so weird that there's so many uh egyptian like related superheroes like well it's a you know it, it, it's archaeology action archaeology right like i mean it always is a yeah. It's what, you know, Indiana Jones is based on, right? It's like any, any kind of like, you know, like, let, let's dig up an ancient mystery kind of thing that uh, it's, it, it, it feels very superhero-y, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Just like I was and thinking you, about, like, even Metamorpho is like... He's uh, an archaeologist, right? yeah. Is an, is an is a Egyptian. He gets his powers from Egypt-related stuff. Right. And Hawkman yeah. and Dr. Fate. And, you know, yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of them, so. Yeah, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, Moon Knight. Um, there's a ton Plus, of they were like, you know, it's we have to explain why he's the beetle, right? Like, who liked beetles? Well, the scarab beetle was a big image, you know, in in Egyptian mythology. 
So let's just tie him in there. No, now we, now uh, we've explained why he's got a big beetle symbol on his chest, right? So. So anyway, so this character exists for about two and a half years, not very popular. You know, Charlton's doing a bunch of other things. Captain Adam is kind of like the big character that they've got at the time. Uh, if you go check out our Charlton stuff. Um, and in 1966, uh, Steve Ditko of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange fame, basically, um, is less and less happy with working with Stan Lee. He hasn't left Marvel yet. He's still working uh, for them, but he basically starts taking uh, some freelance gigs on the side uh, working for Charlton. Now, at the time, like we said, Charlton is still the bottom feeder publisher, right? They pay the worst. Um, and so Ditko is making probably less than half of what he was making for doing Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, right? But A, he's still mad at Stan Lee. Um, he's getting more and more like objectivist in his, you know, like personal life, basically. And Charlton promises never to get in his way, right? Charlton is like, we barely edit anything that we put out, right? So we're certainly not going to complain. Whatever you want to do with your characters, rock on, dude. You're, you know, that's great. Um, and so Ditko, of course, loves this. Ditko loves not having to deal with like, you know, editors who ask him why he does things and that sort of thing, right? So he's totally willing to work for basically slave wages as long as, you know, he gets to the, the freedom to do whatever he wants. So one of the things he does, um, he's also doing, you know, question and a bunch of other things there. Um, but one of the things he does is to revamp the Blue Beetle. He doesn't actually change any of the continuity. What he does do is kill off Dan Garrett, right? And so Dan Garrett is now like a secret identity of being a superhero, but he's still like, an, now he's an archaeology professor, and he's taking an entire college class full of students on a dig where a horrible monster gets released and Dan has to, uh, you know, kind of like run away from the, from the class and turn into uh, Blue Beetle and come back and fight the monster. And the monster kills him. The monster kills Dan Garrett, like right in front of the heroes. And so Ted Cord, one of the students in the class, like takes up the scarab, uh, which doesn't do anything for him. And decides that, you know, uh, in, in the in the in the name of like my hero, my teacher, the guy who like sacrificed himself to save our lives, I'm going to call myself uh, the Blue Beetle, too. And I'm going to go out and fight crime, not having any powers. But I just happen to be a brilliant engineer and I have all of these inventions and gadgets that I'm going to use and I will fight crime as a brand new Blue Beetle, uh, you know, living up to the legend of my mentor, basically. Completely new character, but it's ob still obviously in some sort of continuity with the, you know, the stuff that had been done previously. So Blue Beetle, the Ted Cord version, uh, you know, has all of these cool gadgets. He has a flying ship shaped like a bug, and he has a, you know, gun that shoots like compressed air, but also has like a light flash attack and a bunch of other things like a non-lethal, uh, like multi-weapon gun, basically. Um, and he's an acrobat and he tells jokes and he does Spider-Man kind of like level acrobatics as he like flies around kicking people in the face. And he starts as a backup in the Captain Adam comics. Captain Adam is the most popular thing that Charlton's doing at the time. And so uh, he kicks in and uh, does very well. He's very popular by Charlton standards. So he gets his own issue. He gets his own comic. Um, and that runs the, he, in his backup in the, his own comic is now the question. Right. So like the, the Blue Beetle question comic, uh, you know, like runs for a couple of years. Um, 
and uh, there are a total of like nine issues plus an, one unpublished one that Charlton Bullseye would uh, republish with him later. Of all of the characters that Ditko creates in this time period, Ted Cord, Blue Beetle, is probably the most mainstream one, right? Like, he's the least objectivist, right? He's the least Ayn Rand, uh, you know, like, character of the things that Ditko is doing at this time, which isn't to say there's none of it, but there's much less of it. Um, it's much kind of, like, lighter-hearted. It feels like early Spider-Man. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it's a fun character. But by 1968, once again, Charlton sales have dropped off to the point that they... Uh, you know, get out of the superhero business, and Blue Beetle is one of the um, uh, one of the casualties. Yeah, I mean, Charlton is done after this, right? Like they don't come back. It, they don't really come back. They kind of like become a reprint operation, and they're doing other things, right? Like Charlton still exists as a company, uh, but they are not publishing comics. They are not publishing superhero comics. All right, and since that's the end of the Charlton Blue Beetle, uh, it's probably it's the best end of for it's the end of the, the Charlton version, but it is absolutely not to the end of Ted Cord. Oh uh, no, there's plenty more Ted Cord, and uh, even uh, one more to come. So, uh, hope you join us next time, where we will finish up talking about what happens to uh, Ted and the rest of the Blue Beetle legacy uh, when it gets bought out by DC. Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Pastor. And I'm Darren Wise. Have a good night. Thanks for coming.